Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, my guests on today's podcast, two wonderful women that are in our home, are my friends Benet Larson and Heidi Dustin. Dutson, yes. Dutson. Mm-hmm. Um, That's okay. Happens all the time. <laughs> welcome to the podcast. I met these two wonderful women when I was asked to speak at a faith leadership summit, a prevention suicide prevention faith leader summit that Benet invited me to speak at in September. And I sort of kind of got a, a much clearer understanding of the wonderful work that's being done in the state of Utah in kind of a coalition basis to help um, prevent suicide and to provide support for families who have lost someone to suicide. And I invited these two women to be on the podcast um, to share what they're doing and their insights to help um, bring more understanding to this really important topic that affects um, and potentially affects all of us. Um, Benet Larson is the Prevention by Design Director at NAMI. NAMI stands for the National Alliance of Mental Illness in Utah. And Heidi Peterson Dutson, is that right? That's right. Is the Prevention Administrator and the Regional Director for the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health. And so um, we said a prayer and we just hope that this will be helpful for you as local leaders, as parents, as those of you that are working through mental health issues, um, just to bring more understanding. So if I do a good job, I won't talk much more and let these women share the things that they've prepared. But um, I'd love for each of you to just introduce yourself to our listeners so they know more about you. Let's have Benet go first. All right. Thanks for having us today, Richard. Um, my name's Benet Larson. I um, I work at NAMI Utah, which Richard introduces the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And part of what I do at NAMI is I have a grant from the state that I oversee for suicide prevention. And this grant, we then um, award mini grants to local coalitions from across the state. So um, Tooele, Davis County, Salt Lake County, all the way down to Kane County, which it, it allows um, coalition work and communities to better serve their communities in what's best to help prevent suicide in their communities. Um, as part of that grant, I over, I'm, I co-chair the Utah Suicide Prevention Coalition with Allison Faust, who works at the Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health. So, um, and within that coalition, there are seven work groups. And one of those work groups is a faith work group. And I am honored and I love that I get to co-chair this faith work group with uh, Travis Bear from, who works for LDS Family Services. And Travis and I co-chair this faith work group. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to do for my work. But um, our, our, our purpose is really to bring faith leaders from across the state, from across different denominations, to help them understand and better uh, know how to talk about suicide within their congregations, make it a safe space so that we can prevent suicide. So I am happy to be here today. I'll turn it over to Heidi. Thank you, Benet. Thank you. I'm also super thrilled to be here. Big fan of this podcast and of your work, Richard. So So thank you for that. As you mentioned, um, I'm a regional director and administrator with the Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health. 
Um, my, I guess the beginnings of this work for me um, started in some coalition work that I was involved in. I found myself as a coordinator for a Communities That Care Coalition in out in Tooele City. Um, and, you know, many people don't know this, but there's actually a whole field of science when it comes to prevention. Um, and I was acquainted with this when I was about 30 and became so excited about it that I actually did a career pivot wow. um, and started a career in prevention. And some of what the science teaches us is, is that, you know, there's really things we can dig into as parents, as leaders, when we're concerned about our youth, that we can um, discover certain risk factors and then also what we call protective factors. So, so things we want more of that protect our youth from things like substance abuse, suicide ideation. And then, of course, we know that there's things that put them at a higher risk. And those things are the things that we want to reduce. Um, so I, I began my prevention work in Tooele City, um, taught parenting classes, and then helped run this coalition. Um, and in about 2014, um, I can talk more about this a, a little later, but we had a rash of suicides in, in our county. Um, that really hurt us all. Um, my son was a senior in high school at that time and, um, and was very impacted by that. And, and so we knew professionally also as a coalition, we wanted to make sure that we were doing what we could to address that. Um, and one of the gaps as we were kind of assessing um, our work there, um, we recognized that we hadn't done a lot to involve faith leaders. And we certainly recognize that faith leaders have a large impact um, on, on our youth and maybe even more so um, in the cultures and climates of their congregation. Is it a safe place to talk about mental health? Is it a safe place to talk about things that we're struggling with? And if not, how can, how can we shift that? Um, so that's when we did um, our first faith summit in um, Tooele City, I think that first year. Um, we had 50 faith leaders gather for half a Saturday. Cool. And, you know, when we accomplished that, I thought, wow, this is a need because to take a half a Saturday away from anybody, especially a faith leader that, you know, um, primarily that's done on volunteer time. It really told me that, number one, this is really important. And number two, there's enough need and concern and fear out there for those that we love that people are willing to take the time to invest. Um, so over time, as, um, as my career um, shifted and I, I had the privilege of coming to work for the state of Utah, I was able to associate with Travis and Benet. In fact, Travis came and spoke at one of our Tooele City um, faith summits that we had. Um, and then this wonderful faith work group was established that Benet already talked about. And it's truly one of my favorite meetings to, to, that I look forward to. And and honestly, there is such a feeling of, of compassion and putting maybe some of our, um, you, you know, the tenets of faith that maybe we don't all agree upon. That's all set aside and we're all coming together with this um, united intention of bringing hope and healing um, to, to faith congregations throughout our states. Really a powerful concept and a powerful group to be a part of. I love that. and I. Um, I love the phrase you just used, Heidi, of uh, united intention. Um, I sense you've used that phrase before. No one's ever used that. And um, I think that is a meaningful phrase. And as I attended the Faith Leader Summit, 
I felt the same things you two women are talking about is we can all be unified on this issue. And I think we're drawn to spaces right now where we can be unified and work together to solve a major challenge in our community. So, and potentially role model this for other things that we face, other challenges where we can, I like the word tenant also, we can kind of set aside the the perhaps the tenants that might divide us, but find unity in the common ground we have to solve problems. So the principles I think you'll share on the podcast apply to lots of spaces we're in. So I'll just let you two women continue to talk. <clears throat> All right. Um, You're up, Benet. <laughs> so as as, Ty, as Heidi and I were talking about how we wanted to to frame this, we thought it would be a really good idea just to let your listeners know about the Utah Suicide Prevention Coalition and the work that we do there. Um, for those of you who have not seen the billboards that say Live On or have never been to liveonutah.org, that is our website for all things suicide prevention here in Utah. You can go to the resource tab and there is a faith button. And you can click there to see all of the work that we have done over the last couple of years in this faith space. You can even see Richard do his presentation that he did this year for us, which was excellent. But I, but I think we can kind of kind of backtrack from there and, and explain where it came from and how we, we got to this point because we're really excited to look at the, the progress we've made and the impact we hope that we're having and hopefully moving forward, it will just continue to grow. So I, I think Heidi gets a lot of the credit for this because she, she held those first summits in Tooele and we modeled what we, what we did with the state off of what Heidi did. So I don't know if Heidi wants to talk a little bit more about that. Well, thank you, Benet. And I, I, you know, I can never take in prevention, you can never take credit solely for anything because um and that's really one of the beautiful benefits of prevention is is if prevention is anything it's relationships and it's collaborations um right and so it was it was really a kind of a vulnerable lean into like okay we're going to try to engage faith leaders and and will they want to be a part of it and then I mentioned in the introduction that you know my senior um son that year at his particular uh, his particular high school, he was actually the senior class president. Wow. And they had lost four youth to suicide that year. And I will never forget um, after the first student died by suicide. This was, I think, late January of his senior year. And he had known that somebody had died by suicide. He didn't know who it was. And he came home on a Friday afternoon and he was just heavy hearted about this. And I think he's, he felt a sense of responsibility because, um, you know, he loved his school and, and he, he loved, um, you know, being part of what they tried to create and what it meant to, to go to Tooele High School. So he was heavy hearted that somebody had died by suicide, but he didn't know who that was. Well, I did the best I could at the time to help him through that. I didn't know then what I know now. Um, but he went back to school on Monday and came home even more heavy hearted. Mm. And I could just see this in his body language. And so I said, you know, bud, talk to me. What's going on? And he said, mom, I went to health class today and the chair in front of me was empty. Wow. 
He said, it was her mom. She's the one that died. And I learned a couple super powerful things that day because, you know, there was this moment in space where it's like my son, you know, wasn't best friends with this girl, but he knew that he shared a classroom. He shared space. He walked past her in the in the halls. And I learned then that when we lose a person to suicide, we really cannot measure the impact of loss there. Um, and of course, the closer we're associated, maybe the more impactful that loss. But even just that sharing of space um, was very, very impactful to my son. The second thing I learned from that is that when there is a death by suicide, um, it was kind of indicated in what he said to me next. And he said, started saying things like, Mom, what if I would have known her better? What if last Thursday when she was in class, I would have asked her how her day was going, you know? And so, you know, we know and recognize it was suicide. This is often the case. And there's a sense of blame that we put on ourselves and responsibility. And so I, I know if I were to ask anybody here or certainly any of the listeners, like, was her death my son's fault? Well, of course it wasn't his fault and he shouldn't feel any of that blame. And yet we have this contrary because we ask ourselves, has there ever been a time when somebody is hurting like that girl was hurting and had the risk that she had where somebody knew, somebody saw and courageously intervened to have a discussion um, and to get that person connected with some resources to connect them with hope and and help them remember reasons that life is is still worth living. And of course the answer to that is yes. Of course we know that that can happen. Um and so that kind of became uh this passion and kind of what drove our faith summit in the beginning. Um and Maya Angelou said, and I'd love this quote of hers is that when we when we know better we do better. Um, and so this opportunity um, and what came from that through, um, I started teaching um, QPR trainings. And if any of your listeners are familiar with that, or if they're not, we encourage them again to go on the Live On website. I'm sure there's resources there. There are. You can even request a training. Yeah. But, for, but QPR stands for Question, yes. Persuade, and Refer. Yeah. Question, question, Persuade, and Refer. And that's actually... I love to think of QPR as as like the mental health equivalent of CPR. Um, so it is for mental health what C, what CPR can do for somebody that's in a physical crisis. Um, it usually can be taught within 90 minutes, um, gives you some excellent um, gatekeeper skills, how to recognize those that are in a crisis, and and maybe even more importantly, what to say. Um, you know, and I know before I had the training I did, the subject of suicide was so intimidating. In fact, I remember sitting in my first training and like, I couldn't say the word suicide without just feeling this big old lump in my throat. Those, those words just kind of had to, to get past. And, and after that first training, I think it was a, a three day thing. I, I remember feeling like this suicide prevention hangover. That's <laughs> what I call like, it was heavy, right? Heavy. And I needed me some some happy vibes um, after that. But um, the things that we can learn in suicide prevention are, are super powerful because the truth is, is that really all suicide prevention is about is recognizing um, 
when kind of having our antenna out, recognizing when people are hurting and having the courage to show the compassion to just be a good friend and, and, and creating Richard very much like you do through this podcast, this safe place where somebody knows they can open up and express their hurt without being judged or shamed and that they can have this willingness to be connected to resources that, that can really bring a sense of hope to their life. A great segment. Thank you. Mm. Let's see, where do we go from there? I know. So, <laughs> so I would, so about four years ago, because this is where I come into the story. Yeah. Um, I started at NAMI. It's almost been, it's like four and a half years ago. And my former boss, his name is Kim Gardner. He had this feeling, prompting, you can call it whatever you want, that he needed to create a, a statewide faith leader summit. Like that was his purpose. And he knew he was going to be retiring. And so I got to kind of walk on this journey with him. And he, I know Heidi yeah. was part of that original, but he, he really started with baby steps and reaching out to individuals from the church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, and trying to get a feel on, on their thoughts on it. And, and it took a little bit and it took some prodding and some time. But um, Travis Bear, who co-chairs the group with me now, has always been, it's part of his role in the church. He's the suicide prevention expert for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he came to our statewide coalition meetings. And this was before there was a faith summit or a faith work group. And when these conversations started to be had, we knew he had to be at the table. And so they, it, it started as kind of this advisory board and they got individuals from, from leadership from, from the LDS church, but also other community leaders to kind of discuss like, what could we do? What should we do? How can we address suicide in our congregation? And so we decided to do kind of the summit model where we would bring them together for a day and have a keynote and some breakout sessions and kind of go from there and see what happens. And our first summit was four years ago in April. It was April, May, maybe it was a May. And we had about a hundred people attend. Um, and we were pretty happy, ecstatic, but it was so fun to have conversations in a safe place. And I worked the resource table that day. Um, and had different leaders from the Relief Society. Uh, we had priesthood leadership. We had the general board from the, you know, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we got to have these really great conversations and people were really hungry for what to do, what to say, how to say it. And I, I kind of walked away that day on this kind of pie, you get this because it felt so good to have a safe place where we could talk about it and tell our faith leaders that it's okay to talk about it. Talking about suicide isn't going to put it into somebody's head. It's not going to um, cause somebody to think about it. And it, it kind of created this, this guide of what we could do moving forward and how can we continue to have these conversations. and. We went from that first faith summit and then we kind of were like, well, I don't know, what do we do now? And decided, yeah, maybe we need to, 
to keep it up and see how we can expand. And, you know, we had one the next year and that in, increased to maybe, I think we had maybe 120 who attended. But then this funny thing called COVID happened. <laughs> and last two summers ago, we decided to do it virtually. And we we did some just four days worth of one day a week for a month, I think is how we did it. And we had just different topics. Like, um, let's see, you, we did kind of a suicide prevention 101. We did one about creating um, safe spaces. Let's see, what was it? It was, oh, dang. My brain went. <laughs> it's all on the Live On website. It's on the Live but... On website. It's pretty cool because because the last two years were virtual, we have them all recorded. But um, That's cool. Yeah, so that you could, you know, figure out how to minister to those who were maybe in a minority group, whether that's LGBTQ plus or just within the minority population. That that has been one of our most downloaded and watched sessions. It was excellent. Um, so it allowed us to have content that we could put online, and and it lives now on our Live On website, which any faith leader can go and, and utilize. And then this year's, we were able to do it as a hybrid um, where we had people in person. We had about you know, 60 or so of us in person t- to keep us safe. But then we had over 350 online, which to me is so fulfilling, but also amazing because that shows the need that people wanted to hear how to prevent suicide, how to talk about it, the resources that are available. And, you know, our hope is that we just, just get to continue to move this forward and touch more, more people, more faith leaders from across the state. So if you are a faith leader out there, please go to the website and reach out if you're interested in learning more. But, you know, I think that that is our, this, this passion that we have and this, this I feel really blessed that I get to do this as part of my job, but I also get to, to sit in a meeting once a month and talk about my faith and the blessing that it is that I know that there's this reason that we're all here and we're here to help one another. And we get to have this conversation with those from the Catholic faith or Baptist faith or just different congregations and different faith leaders that have this same passion to to want to save lives. I loved you know, just listeners, my perspective being there for the first time, I did speak, but um, I loved hearing different faith leaders and they were all terrific. And the men and women that participated were just outstanding. And that was just the common theme of how we can do better. We know better, we do better. And um, the panel that I think you led, Heidi, was just mm-hmm. terrific. Um, we ended up having Shayla Slaymaker on the podcast. She lost two brothers to suicide. and. She was just remarkable and courageous in She's that such panel. Such a strong woman, mm-hmm. and I loved your idea of having panel to have people. All four of those panelists were just terrific, and um, for her courage to talk about this just worst case, unbelievable nightmare in her family, she's just heroic. That's episode four seventy seven. Listeners, just a wonderful, courageous woman talking about. But I love where you talk about the lump in your throat, Heidi, because I felt probably felt the same way when I first started to talk about this. I didn't know even though it was okay to say the word out loud. And um, so I, I think that, you know, I think of 
what I would do differently as a parent or as a faith leader. I'm not a faith leader right now in my church, but I have served in a YSA assignment. I would probably do a fifth Sunday on this topic and and talk about suicide and um, maybe even play some of the clips from the Faith Leader Summit or even do a QPR training. Yes. Um, to me, these are all really appropriate topics. Uh, a local leader that does have flexibility in some of their lesson schedule or a fireside or a Thursday night workshop to talk about these kind of subjects. And I think a lot of members of all faiths really want to talk about these subjects. They're on their minds, they're in their hearts. <laughs> I missed or visit an 80-year-old uh, and this topic came up and he really just generally wants to protect his posterity from this potential risk. He knows on some level of a brain, this is something that could affect his wonderful family. And so the work you're doing is so needed and um, hearing stories and sister Ber, 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 <laughs> I'm missing her name right now. Alberto. Alberto, mm-hmm. who I think was there. She gave the, the closing prayer. She gave, mm-hmm. it was just a beautiful prayer, but her talk in general conference, if you're LDS and kind of looking for air cover, she had some incredible quotes that obviously you know too, no word for word, but the one that, you know, talking about suicide in appropriate situations doesn't increase the likelihood. And so I think appropriate situations is what we all need to consider in our areas of stewardship and influence to talk about this subject and the tools that you're providing help us know how to talk about it. So I'll kind of send it back your way for other things you want yeah, to share. You know, Richard, as you were just talking, you said a couple things that, you know, um, really kind of excite me because you mentioned QPR as well as like teaching in, in a fifth Sunday. <laughs> and it's because, um, you know, Benet and I have both had this opportunity. I've, I've taught dozens and dozens of QPR classes, but Good. far and away, my favorite are doing these in a faith setting. And whether that's, you know, to a bishop's council or to a, a youth group, or we have done like ward fifth Sundays. And I love it because you can literally see in the body language of those where you're having this conversation, kind of going from this like uptight to like hearing this word, like, whoa, we're really going to go there. We're really going to talk about suicide. (laughs) And then as we go throughout and we, you know, and some of them that I've taught, we started like with a clip from Elder Ballard, where he's talking about keeping our antennas up and open and looking out for those um, that may be concerned. And people start to realize like, I'm safe here. I can talk about this here. I can not only come and worship here, but I can bring all of me and this depression that I have and this anxiety that I can have. And I can come to this faith place and be open and vulnerable about that and also seek to find answers and healing from that, from God and also from the people that I'm connecting with that may be struggling with the same thing. So it's a beautiful thing to see that. And, you know, one of the things we teach in QPR um, or we mention is that there's, you know, up in Washington State, they're really good at CPR. And at one point, I think the stat was, and it's been several years since I've looked to have this updated, but one out of four people in Washington State are trained in CPR. So the chances are whether I'm at Walmart or at the park or at my son's school, and if I had a medical emergency, somebody around is going to be able to help. 
Well, would that save lives? Absolutely. But what if we apply that to mental health? You know, if we all think in our own cities, if one out of four people was trained to know and recognize the warning signs of suicide, and then even more had the courage to act with compassion to make a difference, would that change the way you felt about the city that you lived in? And then apply that to your faith group or your family. Does that make your faith group a a place you want to be even more? Does that increase the safety that's found there? And overwhelmingly, people are like, yes, like we want that. And and when you bring QPR to a congregation or any group, you can literally watch that transformation happen. It's one of my favorite, favorite things. That was my, um, I think that was the hardest thing when the church took away Change three to, hours yes, to two, yes, the two yes. hours we had just really started teaching QPR yeah. on fifth Sundays like every fifth Sunday I was teaching QPR yes. and then they took that hour away and we all were really like sad. that made it, it a like, little oh. more difficult and, but because still, it gave us extra time yes but I would love to just share like a quick I did mm-hmm. a, a QPR on a fifth Sunday in a ward close to, close by here in the holiday area and got a phone call a couple days later from the, from the lady who had invited me to come do this QPR training. And she talked about how a lady in the ward who had participated in that, in that fifth Sunday, um, through the whole QPR training had this woman's name that kept coming to mind. So after church, she went and, you know, knocked on the lady's door and she found her and curled up in the fetal position ready to be done. And if she wow. hadn't been at church that day, taking that training, what, wow. what would have happened to her cute little ministering sister? Wow. And that was such a testimony to me or a strength to me that God knows when we take these trainings, he puts people in our yeah. lives to make sure that we can, we can keep them safe and help them. But QPR, suicide prevention, is ministering. Yeah. That is how Christ would minister. That, would, that is how we take care of one another. We look for those, those signs. We look for those, those warnings, those behavior changes. And then we reach out and we ask if they need help. We provide that help, that love and support. Yeah. Let me ask a question. Um, if a local leader is listening or a parent and, and wants to do QPR and say, yeah, I, I, and I... And I encourage you to act on your inspiration. There's a lot of things in your control you can do in your stewardship, even though we're, we're right, we've gone to two-hour church. There's still evenings, there's firesides, there's a lot of formats. You could even have people come into your home. But would you encourage an, uh, a local leader to go on the website and just show QPR? Could they do it on their own? Or could they get trained on their own and then teach it? Uh, or would you encourage them to find someone like the two of you that are trained in QPR that then can come in. So give us, give leaders, and there may be people living, listening to this podcast that aren't even in the United States that say, yeah, I want to do this in my area of influence. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's a couple things they can do. Um, if you go to that Live On website, and did you say it's under resources and then faith? Click on faith. If you click on faith, there's, like Benet said, there we have several recordings on there. And one of them from last year is actually a QPR for faith leaders. Um, so that may be a good place for faith leaders to start. If they want to just 
kind of feel like they're getting a sense of what it's all about, they could listen to that. For a congregation, I definitely would recommend that you bring in trained facilitators, Um, you know, like several other trainings there. There is a process you go through. There's a way to teach this the most correctly to have the most benefit. Um, There's a number of amazing QPR um, trained facilitators throughout our state. And you can actually request a training right there on the website. Maybe we have faith leaders out there that would like to become QPR certified and become trainers. And, and I'm sure that would be welcomed um, as, as well. So, so you can do that on the website. Um, but, 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 but I would also say just as for some other ideas or options, you can, courtesy of COVID, we can do the trainings online. Yes. We can do them in person uh, just as a, as a follow-up or because of the Faith Summit this past year, we had two individuals who are over service mission presidents in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they reached out to us because they wanted all the service mission presidents trained in QPR yeah. across the country. So right now, so far, we have trained, I think, close to 70 mission leaders across the country and in Canada. And we've been doing them virtually. And we've had a couple uh, follow-ups after these, these cute mission leaders. Are, they're, they're over all the service missionaries in their communities. And these are young people who either because of mental health reasons or physical reasons, or maybe they've come home early from their missions, they're serving service missions. So they're already, some of them have come home because they've had thoughts of suicide or they've had struggles. And we've been able to train these mission leaders, these mission presidents in QPR. We've had a couple stories come back. Um, I think in, I think it was in our August training that this mission president and his wife got a phone call from a sister missionary who was already, you know, in process of trying to take her life and they were able to use the skills that they got in this, you know, one and a half hour training to get in the car, get on the phone with the hospital, get to the, this young lady and saved her life. That's great. We had a couple other emails that came through that said they, they had been able to, you know, get to the young man before he even got to that point. But I say this because I, there's such a value in training individuals who have, you know, that have the opportunity to serve, to have the skills to save lives, because it really is such a powerful thing to to know what to do when you see those signs and symptoms. I love that. So I I say that because we're doing it. We're training faith leaders right now, and we would love to to see it. Yeah, you know, it's so exciting because it it really is one of those butterfly effect things, right? Like one person learns a skill and, and, you know, something I've come to learn to say in QPR trainings, it's, it's not this royal, if you encounter somebody that's having thoughts of suicide, but it's a win. It's a, it's a win. And, and, you know, I love that we're sharing stories here and stories have can have such a an impact. But when I was going through my first QPR um, facilitator training, as I sat through that, I could not keep my oldest son off my mind. 
at the time. Um, he was newly away at college. He was an early return missionary. He was struggling with depression. And he also had, you know, is same sex attracted and was, um, you know, trying to figure out how to how to navigate that road. And I couldn't get him off my mind. And as I went through this training, my stark realization was that when this training was done, I had a responsibility as a mom to have this conversation. And and it it can create some adrenaline. That can be a very vulnerable, scary thing. And it's one thing, you know, to it it takes courage and it will raise some adrenaline and maybe raise some blood pressure. Probably every time you have this conversation, it does become easier. And and maybe just for the listener's benefit, I'll I'll share how this conversation went with my son. But I I was done with this training and we would talk regularly on the phone and we were having just a regular how's your day kind of conversation. And, you know, my heart was beating so loud, you know, when you can hear your own heart beating (laughs) in your ears, that was I was totally having that sensation. Um, And as we got to a point in this conversation where I could ask the question, um, you, you know, I said, I said, son, I, I know life's really hard for you right now. And I want to tell you, I've been to this training for the last several days about suicide prevention. And I don't feel like I would be a good mom if I didn't ask you, have you had thoughts of suicide? And at that moment, it's like, whoo, I did it. I got the question out, right? Like, whoo, good job. But was the scariest part over? <laughs> you know, like there's this uh, lingering moment there where where so much is hanging in the balance with the answer and I'll never forget my son's answer and what he said to me was mom I have had thoughts of suicide I'm not having them now and I don't feel like that's something that I could ever do But the last thing he said is what stuck to me the most and what is why I am so passionate and I love QPR so much because he said, Mom, thank you for asking. And so, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how sometimes there can be this belief of, well, and it's really stigma, right? And we know that there is a lot of stigma about a lot of issues and certainly there is that about suicide. But we feel somehow when things that have the stigma attached to it, if we talk about it, that we're going to increase the risk. And that one conversation with my son blew that out of the water because what his response told me is like, mom, I know that you love me enough to go there. Wow. You know, that the love is strong enough that, yeah, we'll go where it's uncomfortable. We'll go where it's downright terrifying. You know, and we will have that conversation. And what I also learned was I done having that conversation with my son. I, it's not something I could just check off my box for the day and whoop, I did it. We're done. We're through it. Now, life, life doesn't work that way. But it was a conversation that we had several times since. And in fact, in years to come, he actually moved to New York City. That was vulnerable as a mom to let this kid that felt very high at risk for me to let him go that far away. But we we developed this system of like, where are you today on a scale of one to 10? If he was above a five, you know, we knew things were okay. He was at five or below. That meant, hey, I needed to send more texts, check in with him more often. How are you? How are you doing? And over time, it became a much easier 
conversation to have. And, and I could say I could have it now without feeling even a percentage of, of that, um, terror <laughs> like that I was feeling um, at that moment, but it's become open. And by the way, that son is thriving now. He's back here in Utah. He's, he's, he's doing wonderful things. And I'm so, so grateful that we were able to have those conversations. Um, but in our congregations, in our homes, in our families, when we're able to have this conversation with sensitivity, with compassion, without blame and without judgment, um, there's really no telling how far that can go um, to help save a life. That's a beautiful segment. And to, and thanks for sharing some of your personal story. That makes it sort of more real life for listeners to say, okay, this is not just theoretical. This is how it was applied in Heidi's family. And that was a really helpful segment. I, you mentioned something, Heidi, earlier on, sort of, and I know you talk about this in church settings, is sometimes we have a culture, it can be even toxic perfectionism, where we, and both of you are nodding your heads right now, as <laughs> I enter, where we have a culture where it's, we, culturally, we want to present our best selves and have the best comments at church, and and that can be very helpful at times, those comments can be helpful, but the culture creates a feeling that vulnerability is not allowed here. It's not accepted here. So if you're really working through something like suicidal, I didn't say that right, ideation, that this is not a safe place for me. I don't know if my my local leaders, my bishop, my Reedy Society president, there's never been any cues that I could talk to my ministering sister, my ministering brother, my bishop about this. So for local leaders that kind of recognize that, what what things can they do to help change the culture so at least people know they're safe? Yeah, I'm. This is another hot topic for me that is. I get really excited about, and it really came about because after doing so many QPRs, one of the things we talk about in QPR will we'll show data for you know wherever you live, what are the suicide rates? Right, we want to really look at it and understand. And um, you know, Utah doesn't have boasting rights when it comes to this kind of thing. Unfortunately, you know, we're, we're, (laughs) yeah, we're, we're stayed in that top 10, right. Over the last several, we've, we've changed rankings a little bit, but still in the top 10. And, um, you know, whenever we bring that out and we ask this question, you know, to whoever's listening and we say, why are the rates so high, high in Utah? What do you all think? And inevitably, and this is what really, um, you know, sometimes I couldn't sleep at night because this was always among the first or second answer, especially in LDS groups, is people would say things like, well, because the church expects us to be so perfect um, or it's, you know, people are so judgy here and we can't measure up because we're so perfect. And in one group, I even had a bishop that raised his hand and said, because of the church's expectations on us, like I said, I was losing sleep because I, I could see that, you know, I could feel what they were saying, what they were saying. But as I analyzed it, I said, wait, is it the intention of any leader in the LDS church or other congregations to create an atmosphere where people are feeling so isolated and hopeless that they want to die, (laughs) you know? And of course, the answer to that is no, that is not in the doctrine. It's certainly not in the intention. 
And yet something's happening within the culture, um, the stigma stuff and the way we interact with each other, where we feel like that if we don't pre present our best, if we're not doing our best. And I dug in and did a little bit um, more research. Um, some of your listeners may be acquainted with um, Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher. I love her stuff and I love Same. reading it and kind of applying it to our current faith cultures. Um, and I had kind of this aha moment as she defined shame. Um, and I love this because she, she says that shame, and I'm paraphrasing here, is this intensely painful realization that we're human and we're flawed right and i kind of chuckled at that because it's like oh surprise you know we're all human and we're all flawed um and and like we know that but we try to hide it every day because shame tells us that like if you're flawed and people find out your flaws that you're somehow less worthy of love and belonging and and in fact that you might not be worthy of love and belonging if people find out about this thing. Um, and I love how that's, I just call it a truth bomb because it's like, oh, that's just so powerful and impactful. And, you know, there's a lie and a truth there. The truth is, is that we're all flawed. You know, we're all flawed. And we have faith and we have these congregations so that we can come together and find this hope and this belongingness. And so I would encourage faith leaders to talk openly about that, you know, to, to help us find joy in our faith by finding that redemption, by finding, you know, joy in repentance, um, in, in connection with other people and with a higher power, um, and to recognize in our own souls and our own minds where we're getting tripped up. Like what, what? Are we telling ourselves that if I don't measure up to this, that, that I'm not worth it? Because if we, if we really challenge that, um, we'll probably find, find a lie in there somewhere. And as I was coming to realize this, you know, I had teenagers in the house and my kids would get really worked up or emotional or upset. And we'd like need to like, you know, hey, let's, let's talk. What's going on here? You know, I, I came to find that if I said first and foremost, um, you know, I call them little monsters, those little liars in our head. What are the purple monsters telling you? You know, and almost always they come out pretty quick. Well, I guess I'm believing that if I don't get 110% on the test tomorrow, that my whole life is ruined, you know, and, and you can debunk that and say, what if we just choose to believe that you're going to do your best and everything's going to work out okay and that you're still infinitely loved? And your worth is not affected at all. Um, those can be really powerful conversations. And by the way, not just to have with others, but with ourselves. <laughs> and I still have to have them with myself. I think we all need those conversations, right? We, right? we all need that check-in to say like, <laughs> wait, where, where am I letting those um, lion little purple monsters take the wheel? Um, and let me take that back and, and recognize that we're all flawed. We're all trying to do better. Um, and and that as we try to connect with our higher power, with our purpose and with each other, um, that, that we can find the fruits of that, which are going to, to bring more hope and, and belongingness. I think the other thing I'd address with that too, is that sometimes I think that we create in our faith cultures, well, if we just pray more, if we repent more, if we spend more time in our scriptures, and 
And as faith leaders, you know, those are kind of the default things that they can fall on to give spiritual counsel. Um, And so another part of that stigma is recognizing that it's okay to seek professional help. Not only is it okay, but recommended. It's, it's like very recommended, just like if you had a broken arm, it, you know, um, it's a powerful thing to think about our brain just as another organ. You know, it's this organ between our ears that sometimes gets sick, just like our bellies get sick. You know, we would never judge somebody with a sick pancreas that has diabetes, um, it, you know, and and shame them or turn away because. Oh, we just want, don't want to go there, right? But yet, when we're struggling with anxiety or depression, thoughts of suicide, ideation, um, it's it's really just alerting us that something's not well there. And we have professionals that are trained um, to to recognize and to treat those things. And and so I think that's something that I'd let listeners know too is that when you ask somebody, when you reach out, and this is covered very well in QPR. When you're reaching out with compassion to ask somebody if they're having thoughts of suicide, like I did with my son, that doesn't then mean that I'm qualified to go in and fix everything that's that's happening with him, right? Just like CPR, I'm the one that intervened quickly to recognize that there was an issue. And then I can connect my wow. son to those resources, maybe to the medicines, wow. to the therapy that he needs that is then going to help him. Just like if it was a person with a heart attack, right? And I, if I revive somebody with CPR, am I qualified to go in and do the triple bypass surgery <laughs> that would save his life? That would be the most dangerous thing for that person yes, ever. Couldn't even begin to approach that. But I could save a life by doing CPR. And our listeners, everybody out there, when they know these skills, they can save lives simply by showing compassion, asking a question, and then connecting that person to the, to the professional help. So I think reducing that stigma around that is is really important to remember also. Benet, I'd love to get your thoughts on this or anything else you want to share. And then I have some thoughts on Heidi's great segment there. Yeah, I I I kind of want to just echo ditto to all of that because it it is so true. Um I I was I was at a book club this week with a lot of my friends in my neighborhood, and we were talking about after the the shame we have of as parents when our kids don't follow that perfect path that we somehow expect that they should take, and and it goes into that shame that why do we have a group of women or congregants together where when things aren't going, you know, perfectly, wouldn't we want to rally our arms around one another and support and love in kindness and compassion? And I, I think that goes when you've got someone who's having thoughts of taking their life or they're having, you know, anxiety or depression or panic attacks. Shouldn't we as, as followers of Christ want to let them know that we're there, that we are, we are there to give them the hug and the comfort and the support and just to listen. Um, I think that is so much of why I love QPR, why I love to teach people about suicide prevention, because it isn't big and scary. It really is just what, what we've all promised that we would do as followers of Christ, that we're going to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And what an, a wonderful opportunity we have to, to be 
there for one another. It's a really good segment. Just some thoughts. I, you know, I think of QPR and I think of missionaries that are serving in Austin, and you two know this. And often that's the first sign of mental health issues is on a mission. And I've wondered, and I'm thinking out loud, that wouldn't QPR be a great thing to have as part of mission prep class? Um, you might learn that in yourself, um, but you might have skills also to help your companion. Often it's the companion in an isolated area in the country that's dealing with a companion that clearly has mental health issues. One of the young men in our stake was talking about this. He's really educated on the subject and he's actually teaching mission prep class. And some of the instruction was to read positive scriptures to companion. And he says, well, he didn't, he didn't quite feel comfortable <laughs> with that. He thought he should ask questions. Yes about yeah. what's really going on and the positive scriptures just may isolate that kid more yeah. to know he's not a safe person and this is something I shouldn't talk about and just right. creating shame around it. Well, and I also think it's that idea of reading your scriptures more isn't going to make it go away. Exactly. Right? If you don't deal with why they're struggling, why they're unhappy, why they're depressed, reading scriptures more is just going to make you feel worse. Because it didn't make you feel better. <laughs> I'm so praying. If, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. If you're going to mission prep or in charge of content for mission prep, I just think I'd invite you to consider having QPR part of that. I, I think that's a great idea. I would have sent our missionary sons through that. If I, everything I know now would have helped them, but it would have helped the people they're working with. Absolutely. I wish mission presidents, stake presidents, and priesthood leaders probably had more training in this area. We, I. I, we give really good training in lots of categories, and I just think that's an area for improvement. Yeah. And, and to that point, I think that's why these faith summits have been so popular, because a lot of them are, you know, for example, in the LDS Church, you have men from all different professions yes. um, that are asked to counsel on these spiritual and emotional things. And um, and like I think Benet mentioned this word earlier, there's this hunger <laughs> Um, to know more. And at this year's Faith Summit, um, you know, at the table I sat at, we were privileged to sit with a bishop, I think, from Utah County that had had a member of his congregation come to him. And and I just have so much respect for this bishop because he took a day off work wow. to be there for us. And And I don't know how he got connected or heard about it, but he took the day off work to come and to sit with us, to listen and to learn so that he could better help um, this member of the congregation. I certainly, um, it, missionaries, I, I love that. We have a son serving right now too in the Boston area. And and yeah, what a powerful thing for them to be able to recognize. Um, it, you know, a lot of times maybe they just think, you know, it could be easy to think a lazy companion's just a lazy companion when maybe there's really some legit um, depression there and some conversations that could be had to bring help and and hope um and and then to connect them with some resources i love that and you know i i've got a new book coming out listeners in the spring it's called listen learn and love improving latter-day saint culture and one of the chapters is mental health and in that chapter i open up about seeing a therapist for the second time in my life while serving as a ysa bishop and and feeling shame that if the ysas knew that that I would be, and I was actually glad, and I wrote this in the book to be really vulnerable and honest, that my therapist lived in a different part of the city because I thought, what would the YSAs think of me if they saw me going in to see a therapist? And I thought it, you know, 
in the book, I just said, in an appropriate situation or ward, I would go back and tell the YSAs I was seeing a therapist. Mm -hmm. And because there's no shame in that, Mm -hmm. even though I had internalized a bunch of shame. And perhaps that would have communicated to the YSAs even in a number of areas that, okay, this guy's pretty transparent. He's pretty vulnerable. I can talk to him about, I may not have mental health issues I need to talk about. I need to talk about this kind of stuff. And just the fact he was vulnerable in an appropriate way and creates this kind of culture you're talking about. So I would go back and do a do-over on that. And I would take the shame away that I felt at the time. And my mental health issues weren't life or death, but they were such that I knew I needed a therapist. My therapist was just terrific. And um, I'm in a better spot. I've also thought about, um, I, was, I was thinking also, as you were talking, Heidi, about, you used the word, well, I, I wrote down the words outcomes and milestones. And often we're so focused in our culture on outcomes, like a temple marriage or uh, or these outcomes, there's, and all of those are good. I'm not saying those aren't good, but often that creates a culture of expectation mm-hmm. or culture we're so focused on the next outcome, getting married or getting that degree or getting that mission under our belt. And I, I sense that there's some challenges in our culture that if you don't feel those outcomes are within your reach or your path, that or we're just talking about the outcomes, we're not able to talk about the reality of people's situations because we're always talking about the next step on their path. So there's just a balance there, listeners, um, that I think we need to be sensitive to. So I'll turn it back to either of you just to continue to share thoughts that are coming to your mind or that you've prepared. Yeah, you know, I love that. And I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, I think it was President Hinckley that talked a lot about finding joy in the journey, Mm. right? And it, it really is about that and allowing those, whether it's our children or those in our stewardship, you know, because agency really is such a powerful principle, right? And and so, um, you know, to to guide and to focus on values and principles, um, but this weight of expectation or control of another's um, journey really is not ours, right? And that's really a projection of maybe our own shame or our own fear of being judged. That's part of True. all the sticky widget in the culture, right? <laughs> Um, and, and what we want to create and, and I think really what we understand, um, and respect to, to be God's way is to honor agency and to allow a person to choose their path, um, and, and to discover what brings them joy, um, and, and to, you know, get rid of anything that feels like coercion or, like you said, it's a balance, this, this unhealthy expectation of like, if you, if you don't go on a mission or if you don't get married in the temple, that somehow you will receive less love from us. If that's a person's choice, we want them to be able to embrace that with the full power of them being a, doing that because that's what they own, right? That, that brings more power to that decision anyway, if they're doing it of their own volition, other than if it's expected. And I think we hear that with missions too. You know, sometimes missionaries um, come home um, or say, you know, that I just did it because my parents wanted me to. Um, and, and so, you know, if we can give that power back to the individual of owning their role, role. and sometimes that can be a vulnerable and scary thing to do as, as a parent. I've certainly learned that, you know, combined, we have eight children in all different 
um, stages and choices of their lives. But it really is a beautiful thing to surrender um, that to each child of, of them taking that ownership in their life. Wow. I'd love you to talk to, because part of, as I went to the website, is support for families that have lost somebody to suicide. So we've obviously talked about preventing suicide, but I think you both have some skills and insights. And there may be listeners that have lost a family to member to suicide and maybe even tried and done of some of the things that have been to QPR and have really done their best efforts. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just this just happened in spite of everybody's best efforts. So you have support groups in places there experiencing unimaginable grief and shame and second guessing everything and just talk to those families that that I think you have some words that would be helpful. You know, um, uh, it's heavy, right? It's just heavy. And it's like we said at at the beginning, like my son who lost this classmate. um, and, And one of the things I've noticed when I've taught a QPR, I'll often ask, um, who in this room has been impacted at all by suicide? Great question. And almost always, all the hands go up. So when we're talking about suicide loss survivors, I think that number is a lot larger than than we give credit for. And certainly, again, those that are closer to that um, person that has died, the, the greater the impact. Um, but because suicide is a death like no other, no other. It's a grieving like no other. You know, it has all those yucky appendages like you just talked about with the blames and the the, the blame and the what ifs, those questions. Um, and so certainly seeking support, um, seeking support groups. And I'll let Benet talk to some of those resources um, that are available. Um, a concept that I found really helpful is this idea of of grieving forward. And I've seen this with um, those that I've had really the honor of associating with that have lost really close loved ones to suicide is that they turn that grief then into this passion to reaching out and bringing hope and help to others. Um, I know Shayla is such a great example of that. You mentioned her at the start of this podcast and so many others, um, Lark Galley that was yeah. also on the panel, right? And she's had this terrific. tremendous loss um, with her son. Um, and I could just cry buckets, you know, um, I, I have a dear friend that lost her son, um, to, to suicide a number of years ago. And, and, and man, it's, it's just, it's deep. Um, and there's such strength, you know, when we can take any of the trials that we experience and then turn that into something that's positive. I think there's great healing in that. But I would also add to that that we need to be careful not to judge a person's grieving journey, right? That that um, some might be willing to jump in and be an advocate for suicide prevention right away, and others might need some time or might want to keep that private um, and do their own, you know, more isolated grieving. Um, well, hopefully, a, with the right help and supports, right? But what a thoughtful yeah. comment. All of that was really thoughtful. I love the term suicide loss survivors. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what they're. Yeah. That, that's a real that's thing. That's a bad label. But <laughs> if that's what they're, that's the, what yeah. we call them. And I they love are it because, because it, it really, I think, gives credit to that point of the trauma is, they've yeah. been through. It is a, a trial and 
they've survived something unimaginable. Yeah. And and I think another reason is because, and research does show this, that the risk for suicide goes up tremendously when somebody close to you has died from suicide. Um, and so we want those suicide survivors to continue to be survivors. And, and I think to even recognize and validate within themselves that that trauma has put that, them at increased risk, um, you know, to validate that for people that have had that loss can maybe also help encourage them to stay connected to support groups, to, to therapy, to, to those that can um, reach out and, and help. Um. I've never thought about extending grace the way you did to suicide loss survivors to walk that road. Lark Galley kind of talked about in the panel about how different members of her family. Yeah. But I think, you know, some people do get very involved. I know George and Allison Doyson, who lost their son yeah. Stockton. And I've talked about him because he's the one that really connected me to the LGBTQ space. Their son was gay and died by suicide as a teenager. And they have chosen to be, you know, very active in creating a better space for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. They're two of my heroes. But there's others that um, have processed this in a more private way and haven't done anything public. And I think what you're saying is, if you're one of those and the way you're healing is to walk this road the way you are, then let's we'll extend the grace to you to do that the way you know is best. And we're not going to add to your load by sharing your stories of how other people are processing it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to add that expectation, right, on on top of all of it. Or you've got to do something big and grand. Yeah. Start a massive foundation and raise. You right. Just do this the way you need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think so many of them do it so well. Their, their AFSP has walked. Yes. And, and sometimes that's all it is that they, they're walking for that family member. So that they're always yes, remembered. and that's a that's a simple way, right? Mm -hmm. and AFSP is the American Foundation, Foundation. for Suicide mm -hmm. Prevention, so they have a great website and host walks and that kind of thing. Um, oh, and I had another thought; it'll come back to me. But it, it, yeah, just just this idea of um, when when we lose somebody to to suicide, to really um, you know take take care of ourselves. That's what it was. And we teach us in QPR of, um, you know, we're told if, if we ever go on an airplane, I was on one recently and they, they still do this, the little <laughs> speech there at the beginning, um, they have to run you through those protocols. If there was an emergency and you had to use that oxygen mask, right. And I, I know we kind of all tune that out now. Um, but but the idea that they're teaching is if that oxygen mask is deployed, that we want to make sure we first put it on ourselves and then help those around us. So I guess to those grieving that we understand and respect and want to validate that they're at higher risk, that, that would be my advice there is that make sure you're giving yourself the oxygen that you need. Do what you need to to, to heal um, what's hurting inside of you. And then if you feel called to it, if you feel excited about the idea of reaching out and being an advocate um, and having that in a more public, public space, space, do it. But certainly, like you said, let's not add this as, a, as an expectation, as expectation or yeah. add a shame to it if that's not what somebody chooses to do. Would you two talk to those that are thinking of suicide as they're listening to this podcast? I think 
what I have learned over the last few years is that you are loved, even though, like Heidi said, those little purple monsters in your head make you think that you're not. You are loved. And there are people around you who, who love you. And if they are not seeing your, the signs that you are struggling, just tell them because they will be okay with it because they will want you to live and want you to get the help that you need. And I think the more we can take away that shame and that stigma, because so often we think, how can I be having these thoughts that makes me not worthy of that love from others? But it, it's why, why we're here and why we do what we do is so that people understand that they have value and they are loved. I, I think that that is one of the most important things as we talk about suicide is that we make it okay to talk about suicide. And we understand there's a quote that we have in our trainings that talks about all of the suicide deaths. Most people who think about suicide go on to live. 90% get the help they need and they don't die by suicide. So we want to make sure that we're having that positive narrative in our heads. Everybody goes through hard things and we get through it. Let's focus on that and make that what we championed, that you struggled and you got through it. And what it is it that you did to get through it? Because I think when, the more we are open and talking about what we did to get through those hard times, it makes us less vulnerable to, to having that shame in our own head, in our own space. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful, Benet. I would just add to that, it, it, you know, just simply to anybody out there struggling, you are heard, you are seen, and you matter. Um, I had somebody once describe this feeling of, of suicide ideation, of wanting to die. It's being in a car. Um, this engine worked just fine, but they're locked on the inside. And there's three inches of thick mud on the windshield. So even though like everything physically about the car, the engine's okay, they can't see down the road. And what a, what a hopeless feeling that is. And yet for that person in that car, is there hope? Yeah, but not without somebody from the outside. Wow. Somebody that can come with the tools to get that mud off. It's, it's more than turning on the windshield wipers can handle, right? It would break the windshield wipers. Sometimes the simple things um, that we all do for mental health maintenance aren't enough. And if we find we're doing those things and we're still feeling heavy and like we can't get on top of it, um, we need help from the outside. And just like somebody could come bring a chisel and get that mud off with consistent help from professionals, people like, like Benet said, 90% of those that struggle with ideation go on to live and not only live, but live with hope and, and thrive. And my son's also an example of that. Um, and not to say that his journey's not over yet, right? Like, like, and that's the other amazing thing is, you know, right now, some of your listeners may be really struggling with ideation. Others may think that that's something they can't relate to. Well, it might be one day, you know, where any of us um, can be 
vulnerable for some kind of whammy or situation to happen in our life that puts us there, that puts us in that car with that thick mud on the windshield. So, so please, if you're listening, recognize that there are resources, there's hope, there's help, there's people. If you don't feel seen and heard, there's people that want to see you and want to hear you and want to create. And if you feel like you don't have someone, call the lifeline. There are people there. How did they get to the lifeline? 1-800-273-TALK. And it'll route you to wherever you are in the country to your local crisis line. Here in Utah, it goes to Huntsman Mental Health. But call the lifeline. Can you give the numerical too, just because I know some of these phones don't even, you're going to look it up. Is it 9255? I have to think about it. I'll look it up and I'll just make. I think it's 9255. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. Um, A model that's been helpful for me that I assume you two know better than I do is the Joyner model. Thomas Joyner talked about a model of suicidality and I don't have any training in this area, but two of the circles he drew of the three are this thwarted belongingness, which is the feeling you just don't belong. And um, a perceived burdenness, which is a lie in your head, that lie that I'm at, my family's actually better off without me and the world is better off without me. And I've always thought about in the context, especially for LGBTQ people, that their existence on itself is um, ruining their eternal family. So they, I don't want to put ideas in your head, but my experience is to talk about these openly. Um, that somehow my existence is ruining my eternal family, which is a complete lie and not true. And every, and just the things these two women said are the things I'd say to you. But what we can do to help people feel like they belong and help people to realize that they're not a burden. In fact, they're a joy. And I like to sometimes think of your older selves talking to you and what they'd say to you post these suicide ideation stages and how if your older self could talk to you right now, if you are in that state, the things they'd say to you, I love your car analogy, ID in the mud. Someone I was talking to once who was, you know, pretty suicidal said, I said, what about the light at the end of the tunnel? And they said, there is no light (laughs) at the end of the tunnel. And that was really sobering for me. No one has ever told me that before. And it's mud all over their car. And they didn't have the tools. To see that light at the end of the tunnel. And I was so honored they told me that's how they felt. Um, but what you talked about is what we need to do to scrape that mud so they can see out the windshield. So pretty tender subject, listeners, and I get tears in my eyes I think about this. So I'd love to keep the conversation going. I just want to, you know, that's all. I did want to give a shout out to Travis Bear, who you mentioned, who's doing incredible work and Really look up to him and admire the work he's doing. Deborah and Don Coe, who do a lot of, you know those two, do a lot of QPR training and have helped mentor me in this space and connected me with you, Benet, to do this in the first place. And they're just terrific members of our community also. But I'd love to turn it back to you for kind of close to calling comments. We don't need to close right now if you have more stuff, though. I don't want this to end prematurely. You know, one of the things I was thinking of as we were talking about, you know, for those lost survivors, um, especially at this time of year, at Christmas time, many people don't know we have this really amazing resource um, at the University of Utah called Caring Connections. Kathy, Dr. Kathy Supiano does these grief support groups, these loss groups. Um, 
Many of them are low cost or free of charge. She does this grief during the holiday, wow. which is amazing. I think it was actually this week, but um, you go to Caring Connections, you can get, you can see, but she is also presented at every single one of our faith summits. So um, if you're a faith leader or you're interested or you want information, Kathy Supiano's Caring Connections is a invaluable resource for our community. Beautiful. I love Kathy Supiano. She does, she does great work. Um, I think another thing that I would add, another resource that's available, you know, often there is a, a link between suicidality and substance use. Um, and, and I just want to draw attention that there's really power in this idea of coalitions. We talked about that at the beginning. And, you know, a coalition is people coming together from all different sectors um, to address things that are putting people at risk. Um, so to prevent substance abuse and some, some of those shared risk factors between substance use and suicidality, you can go to utahprevention.org and there you'll find coalitions all over our state. Um, we have so many great people out there doing fantastic things. And, and so if, if that some of the things we're saying here are calling to you, um, you can go to that website. Um, reach out, ask questions. What's being do? What's being done to prevent substance use? Um, certainly, we know um, you know kids that initiate in substance use. They're putting themselves at a higher risk for some of these mental health problems, and vice versa. Our kids that are struggling with mental health are at a higher risk um, for substance use and engagement. So, um, reach out, find out what's going on in your community. Um, start where you're at. Um, and, you know, there's a difference everybody can make. I've, I've said before, you know, that substance use and suicide prevention is my business, but it's really everybody's business. Um, so I think that would be kind of my closing message to everybody out there is we hope you're not listening to this and thinking, oh, well, that's what Heidi and Benet do for a living. And I'm so glad that there's people out there that have this covered. Um, because we can't do that without every person coming to know their responsibility when it comes to suicide prevention and doing that part. That's how our work gets done. Yeah, so we have like this line that we use in suicide prevention. Suicide prevention is everyone's business. Like everyone can prevent suicide. So don't think that it doesn't apply to you because it does. It applies to all of us. And um, if I can... You know, one of the things we, we haven't really talked about this much today, but I always have to feel like I need to stand on my soapbox. When we Good. talk about suicide, we always talk about our youth and our young people. Good point. And that's great. I, you know, our, our youth suicide rates are higher than some of the other states. But guess what? Our adult men die by suicide 70%. Like 70% of all of our suicide deaths, I said that wrong. 70% of all suicide deaths in Utah are adult men between the ages of 24 to, I don't know, it just changed, 24 to about 65. So if you're hearing our conversations today about suicide, think about all those people that are in your circle of influence, especially if they're adult men, because our adult men don't don't they have more of shame like Richard talked about of seeing a therapist or talking about their mental health 
but our we need to change that that stigma and that that culture around talking about it because we don't want to lose another husband, another brother, another friend that then leaves that ripple of families that have to be a suicide loss survivor. So I know our our youth, we don't want our youth to die either, but I think sometimes we do a disservice to not talk about that elephant that's in the room. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up too. And and Richard, when you shared your story about going to therapy and just all those feelings that were coming up, you know, that's a pervasive attitude in our country, really. You know, as Americans, we kind of have that pull up your bootstraps and and that's, you know, um, I think exponentially more on men than on women. Women, we kind of have this culture that, you know, lean on me and let's go to lunch and bear our souls. More we talk about it. Talk our feelings out. But, you know, like when you look at, um, you know, things like um, our veteran population, first responders, you know, um, a, a lot of times and and not to say that women don't aren't in those professions and, and those arenas, too, because they certainly are. But um, like Benet said, that that data is out there around men. And so the power of you, Richard, getting up as a bishop in a YSA ward or any congregation and and just saying, you know, I was at therapy last week. And, you know, even just as a start to a sentence right there, you just gave permission for others to be like, I I could go to therapy and like, that could be an okay thing. Um, powerful. And sometimes men, and maybe we do this, is we wait and share our experiences once we're done. So now I'm out of therapy. <laughs> so now I'm more likely feel to safe, I'm right? say, <laughs> but what you said was even, you know, I'm in therapy. Elder Holland, when he talked that broken vessel yeah. talk, mm-hmm. um, I think he was sort of past that crisis of his emotional health. And it was still a great talk. I don't want to take it. But what you said, I think, is important for a culture that we're still, we're not, to, we sometimes keep all this private yeah. until the crisis has passed and then we'll talk about it. But I think we can talk about it in the journey is often really helpful to your point. I love what you said about Benet and it reminded me of a podcast we did and I'll just reference this low, listeners. Episode 220 is Dr. Joe Kramer, pediatric doctor, our own pediatric doctor in our own ward here who is a past um, president of the Utah Medical Association who came very close to, to dying by suicide. And he talks about the very things you talk about as a medical doctor, um, the shame around someone in that profession. And he was really vulnerable on the podcast and just talked about his plan and, you know, he went through it all. And then he talked about why he chose not. And he's honest about his emotional health. And that hasn't been, you know, he isn't like, to the finish line yet he talks he's one of the most vulnerable guys in our own congregation just being honest with his emotional health and um part of the and this may be helpful is he realized he had you know even though he was in such a tough spot his mind was logical enough says i'm worried i'm going to teach my family members this is how you solve problems which is sort of your point about sometimes this multiple family members and and so any reason you choose not to die by suicide, I think is a good one. <laughs> um, and so I was, I was glad he shared that. It was really interesting for me to hear that. And it's probably good for other more adult people that have a posterity already here <laughs> that could cognitively say that's, you know, that's would be, so it's just a thought. 
Um, but that's episode 2220. It's a couple of years old, but it was really a great episode. To your point, Benet, is this isn't a youth thing. Um, so, I, and I'd love you, if there's anything I've said that you'd just love to correct a little bit, just because you have professional training that you were a little uncomfortable with, or there's anything I've said, I'd be sure willing to, I well, want this I, to work for I our listeners. I think you've done such you've a great done job. wonderful. It's a, it's a great conversation. I, I think one thing that's or always you, when we have the chance to clarify, there there are safe ways to talk about suicide that are a little bit more promoting of um, people feeling safe yeah. and hope seeking and feeling less judged. So an example of that, it, you know, if we don't want to say, hey, Robbie is suicidal, but Good. to say, hey, Robbie's experiencing feelings of suicide ideation, that's, that's right? We wouldn't say again to somebody with cancer, uh, you know, so-and-so is cancer, <laughs> you know, this, it's, it's not the entirety of, of who a person is. So we want to be careful with um, those labels and even with something um, as, as far as saying they committed suicide, yeah. that one we hear a lot. Tell us what's better. And so what we want to hear, um, what's safer is to say so-and-so died by suicide. It was the cause of death. Um, that can be less shaming. Because if you think about the word committed, what comes to your mind? Committed a sin, committed a crime. You Even wanna... committed to a hospital, yeah. right? It has a negative um, connotation to it. So Sometimes these things just become a very regular part of vocabulary. We hear it and we use it, but just little shifts like that. No and, better, we do better. Yes, yep. there you go. Yep. And and we want people to, especially if you're thinking of those survivor families, we don't want to place judgment on their child who took their life or their family member. It's not our, you know, and, and when we say committed, that that judgment is already there. Well, I think we'll close, listeners. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. It gives me hope to hear the things you're doing, the organizations you're doing, your level of understanding and expertise in this area, the fact that your voices and others like yours are being more heard and more understood in many circles. Um, so, um, listeners, we've mentioned a lot of links, um, and we'll put those in the show notes. I'll make sure to get it. We've talked about a coalition. I want to make sure to get that in there. and all the different groups. You can scroll through the podcasts just to make sure you didn't miss anything that would be a helpful research resource to you that you could scroll to. So this is, I'm going to get your names right, Heidi Peterson Dutson and Benet Larson, L-A-R-S-C-N, mm -hmm. and Richard Osler signing off for another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.